Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 9th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. A few weeks ago, I had some minor foot surgery. If you're one of those people who considers that minor and surgery in the same sentence is not an oxymoron, then it was minor foot surgery. And actually, it was minor foot surgery. I was awake for most of it. But when I got home, I came home with several days' worth of Percocet pain medication, which is the kind of stuff that tends to shorten your attention span dramatically. Now, it might be easily and successfully argued that the best time to set up an operating system on a computer and install applications is not the day after that surgery when you are taking regular doses of Percocet and not being able to remember much of anything. That's exactly what I tried in mid-November after my foot surgery. I had been told to keep my foot elevated as much as I could, so that meant I could not use the desktop computer. There's no way to use a desktop computer on a desk and keep your foot elevated, at least not if you're me. So I grabbed the notebook computer, propped my foot up, sat in the chair. Maybe I did that in the other order. Sat in the chair, picked up the notebook, propped up my foot. That's probably the order in which I did it. And started working on the computer. Uh, The computer had Linux on it. We've talked about Ubuntu Linux before. It wasn't too far set up at that point, so I needed to do some of the setup parts. The operating system was already there. Uh, OpenOffice Suite was already there. A few other applications were already there. And uh, I had installed some things, but I hadn't yet set up the OpenOffice email program, Evolution. If I was going to do anything more than just play Solitaire, I needed to do that. Evolution is essentially the open office equivalent of Outlook. I found it easy to set up, even in a somewhat depressed mental state, easy to set up the two primary email accounts and establish a few sorting rules, at least the ones to sort my mail into the primary categories I use. Evolution sorting is at least as powerful as that provided by Outlook, and perhaps even more powerful than what Outlook has, far less powerful than what I'm used to with a program called the BAT. In the BAT, I have dozens of rules that are composed of complex rules. Well, evolution filters can at least look at the sender, the receiver, the text in the body of the message or the subject line, specific header information, and more. The primary shortcoming is that you can't specify any of those complex and-or conditions. All the conditions must be met as an and, or any condition must be met as an or. So as email programs go, the filters are relatively strong compared to the bat. They're nothing. But what was interesting is it was still fairly easy to set up, even under the influence. And operating on half power or less, I had the accounts set up in about 10 minutes most of my critical filters functioning within half an hour. Then I wanted to import my address book from the bat. So that's taking an email address book from one kind of program on Windows to another program on a Linux machine. How hard do you think that was? Well, I hobbled over to the desktop, exported the directory in several formats to a flash drive, plugged the flash drive into the notebook. Linux immediately noticed it was there, 
mounted the drive, opened a folder on the desktop, and I asked Evolution to import one of the files. The very first one I picked worked perfectly. took about 10 seconds. At this point, I was really getting pretty impressed about both Ubuntu Linux and about OpenOffice. And the word processor. I had started keeping some notes in Abi Word. I quickly converted them to OpenOffice Writer because it has more features. It looks a lot more like Word that I'm more familiar with, and it supports typographic quotation marks. Abi Word has been in development for a lot of years. The process has been excruciatingly slow. I reviewed a Windows version of the application in 2004. At the time, I said its primary feature, primary reason for being, was its ability to support languages that are printed from right to left as well as those that are printed from left to right. Well, it hasn't progressed a whole lot from there. OpenOffice Writer, on the other hand, is a lot more like Microsoft Word, both in interface and features. You can create a document in Linux under OpenOffice Writer, save it in Word format, send that file to a Windows machine, and open it in Word there, and expect it to work, and it will most of the time. The only reason not to use Writer would be if you are dependent on specific functions, for example, track changes. Uh, If you do a lot of editing and you need to have track changes on so that people can see what changes you've made, then OpenOffice Writer is not going to be a good choice for you. Browsing under Linux worked pretty well. Depending on how you view Internet Explorer, you might consider it good or bad that Microsoft's Internet Explorer isn't available for Linux. Firefox is installed by default, and that's just fine with me. That's the browser I prefer to use. Opera isn't shown in the pre-installed list of available applications. I did have to go look for it. But the Opera website detected that I was running Ubuntu version 7.10 and offered a self-installer package. Immediately following the installation, the Ubuntu update procedure let me know that an update was available. So two browsers probably would be adequate. It's possible to set up the machine in dual boot mode so that when the machine starts, I would have a choice of running Windows or Linux. Being a little fuzzy in the head at the time, I decided that that would not be a good thing to try. Dual booting is on hold for a while. Even though I'm no longer mentally fuzzy, the notebook has a DVD player that isn't entirely reliable. I don't want to risk a failure as the bootloader is being installed because that would kill the Windows XP installation on the disk. So maybe I'll do that someday, but not right now. I know from reading reports by those who have set up Ubuntu to be part of a dual-boot system on a Windows machine that it's a fairly trivial operation, but still you want to make sure you have a full backup just in case. And if you're someone who was a DOS whiz kid back in the old days, you'll love Linux. The command line is all there was back in the old days. And, of course, Linux, being related very closely to Unix, has a command line. Of course, now even Macs have command lines. The C-Prompt was a step up from 80-column cards, paper tape, and printing terminals. But then Xerox at the Palo Alto Research Center, Apple down the road a little ways, 
and Microsoft up in Washington, developed variations of the graphical user interface. Mac users in particular used to make fun of the DOS underpinnings of Windows, and that was, of course, before Apple started using Unix as the base for OS X. Unix and Linux have always had a real strong command line. Windows Vista also has a robust command line. So instead of making fun of the command line, Apple-centric magazines are now embracing it. Well, as a Linux user, you may want quick access to the command line. And there's a utility called Yaquake that provides exactly that. Once it's started, Yaquake hides until you press the activation key. The activation key is F12 by default, but OpenOffice Writer happens to use F12 for something else, so I changed it to Control-Alt-F12. You press Control-Alt-F12, and a command line slides down from the top of the screen. At that point, you can do any Linux command. If you check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a screenshot from the Linux machine showing the Linux start menu equivalent. It's up at the top of the screen instead of at the bottom, as under Windows. You'll see the Linux tray equivalent. It's also up at the top over on the right-hand side. You will see SpamArrest running in Firefox as a native Ubuntu application. You'll see something called Zim as a desktop wiki under Linux. I'm using the wiki to keep notes to myself as I learn how Linux works, keeping notes that I can use on this program, keeping notes that I can use just to remind myself of something that's useful. Pigeon is running on the desktop as a native Linux application. Pigeon is an IM application like AIM. And then you'll see a Windows application in an Explorer-like view under Wine, not the drinkable kind. So far, everything I've set up has been surprisingly easy. I remember the old days of trying to set things up under Linux and having to handle all of the various distributions, the dependencies, the packages. That has all not gone away but it has been obscured from the user. Some of my friends use Fedora, and it has a lot of similar options for managing packages and dependencies, so many of the Linux distributions seem to be concentrating on ease of use. And by way of just some miscellaneous data points about Ubuntu Linux, I run Ubuntu Linux on a 1.4 gigahertz laptop system with 1 gigabyte of RAM. It is ready to run following a cold boot in about a minute 25 seconds. Microsoft Vista running on a far faster machine, 2.66 megahertz Intel Core Duo processor with 2 gigabytes of RAM, requires more than 2 minutes to start. And this is pretty telling. The operating system, OpenOffice, Firefox, and a bunch of utilities and small applications consume about... 3 gigabytes of disk space, and they cost nothing. That compares to hundreds of megabytes for Vista and Microsoft Office alone, and of course they're not free. A geek friend of mine set up Ubuntu on a computer belonging to his teenage daughter. She liked it. Although I can get Ubuntu to play sounds, recording from the built-in sound system hasn't yet worked. I have not been able yet to record a TechBiter Worldwide podcast on a Linux machine. That may be simply a function 
of the fact that the laptop I've got it installed on is a relatively old machine. It's more than four years old. Bottom line, in the words of Linus Torvalds, who's the inventor of Linux, really, I'm not out to destroy Microsoft. That will just be a completely unintentional side effect. Well, speaking of Microsoft and Vista, you know that I've gone back and forth a bunch of times on Vista. I like it. I don't like it. The times when I didn't like it, I discovered in retrospect, were the result of hardware problems. So largely, I like what Vista does and how it does it. Now, Windows XP has only two kinds of user accounts. There's an administrator who can do everything, and then there's everybody else, and they can do virtually nothing. There needs to be a middle ground. Because the non-administrator accounts are so limited under XP, everybody gets an administrator account. That's somewhat like allowing a Linux or Unix user to run as root. Dumb idea. Windows Vista adds another layer and provides the user account control, UAC. A lot of people don't like that. UAC allows most users to log in as standard users because a standard user who knows the administrator's password can allow potentially unsafe actions to proceed by providing the password. UAC asks for permission before performing actions that could be potentially damaging to the computer or change settings that affect other users. An administrator who sees a UAC message can simply indicate approval. You don't need a password. If you're already a machine administrator, you just click OK. So it's just an extra step of confirmation. I don't really mind having the machine double-check me, watch my back, make sure I don't do something dumb. Standard users will see a dialog box, but then they must provide an administrator's password to proceed. The goal of UAC is to prevent malware and spyware from being installed. Now, there are four kinds of messages you can get. One says Windows needs your permission to continue. What this means is a Windows function or program that can affect other users of the computer needs your permission to start. You need to check the name of the action, make sure it's a function or a program that you want to run. If it is, allow it. Next message, a program needs your permission to continue. Well, in this case, it's a program that is not part of Windows. It has a valid digital signature, which indicates its name and its publisher. That helps to ensure that the program is what it claims to be. So you need to make sure that that is also a program you intended to run, and if so, allow it. The next one you may see would say, an unidentified program wants to access your computer. Well, this means it's a program that doesn't have a valid digital signature from its publisher to ensure that the program is what it claims to be. That may be okay. It doesn't necessarily indicate there's any danger at all. A lot of older legitimate programs lack signatures. A lot of applications from small companies lack digital signatures because those digital signatures are expensive. However, if you do see that message, you do want to use a little extra caution and allow this to run only if you obtained the program from a trusted source, such as the original CD or the publisher's website. And then there's the fourth message you may see. Hopefully you won't see this one very often. This program has been blocked. Well, that would mean it's a program that an administrator has specifically blocked from running on your computer. To run that program, you have to contact the administrator and ask to have the program unblocked. So because of Vista's new security, 
Microsoft recommends that most users log on with a standard account most of the time, not an administrator. You can still surf the Internet, send email, use a word processor, all without an administrator account. When you want to perform an administrative task, such as installing a new program or changing a setting that will have an effect on other users, you don't have to switch to an administrator account. Windows will simply prompt you for permission or for that administrator password before allowing you to perform the task. Gee, that's kind of Unix-like. Got an email this week from Just In Time. Clever name. He wrote to me from Adult Friend Finder to say my bank account would be charged $287.64 for a year subscription. Now, it seemed to me that I had not enrolled anywhere in Adult Friend Finder. seems to me I have enough adult friends, so I probably don't... Oh, that kind of adult. Well, I don't need those friends either. Well, my two options were to proceed to confirm or to proceed to cancel. I hovered the cursor over both of those, and oddly enough, they both went to the same place. Not a domain name, but to an IP address. Big surprise there. Well, I didn't have time to see what was there. I certainly wasn't going to click with an unprotected browser from an unprotected machine. And the application I used to examine potentially hostile websites wasn't loaded on the computer that I was at at the time. Well, by the time I got around to checking it, the site had been taken down, so whatever it was offering was already gone. I'm sure it wasn't offering anything good. The IP address was in the, is in a range owned by Comcast. So Comcast had apparently discovered it and had taken it down. Also this week, I got an email from a barrister. This was a bit more convincing. Reasonably well written, almost as if the writer actually had some passing experience with the English language. And the letter did what several recent samples I've seen have also tried. It admitted that there are a lot of scams such as this on the Internet and reassures me that I will not need to send any money. That, of course, would come later. The writer also seems to have discovered, and this is a big step forward for these guys, that pressing the caps lock key will turn off that feature and allow messages to be composed in upper and lower case text. That was at least a refreshing change. But there were lots of dead giveaways. First of all, there was no name in the to field, which simply means that the message had been blind copied to more than a single person. Now, the average attorney looking for someone to share an inheritance would be looking for a single person and would not send a broadcast email. Further damaging to the credibility, the writer called me dear friend instead of using my name. And I happen to know that barristers don't do this kind of work. Barristers are pretty high-priced chaps. They represent you in court. You won't receive an inheritance letter, not even a valid one, from a barrister. So, of course, it's another money scam. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you can see the full text of the message. And in nerdly news, we get a slap in the old Facebook. If you're kind of a relic like me, you may not know a whole lot about Facebook. It's one of those social networking sites. Let's just share information about yourself with friends and acquaintances. Well, that's pretty neat, but there is a darker side. Just how much information do you want other people to have about you? Do you want them to know what you've been buying recently? 
Users can share that kind of information with their friends, and it turns out that that's not always a good thing. Let's say you've just bought something big for a special friend's birthday. That person is in your Facebook network and, depending on how you've set things up, might be able to see exactly what you've purchased with just a click or two. And Facebook can also share the information with advertisers who pay the site for that information. Well, this week, Facebook backed off a bit on the program that shares information about a member's purchases with their friends. This was a dumb idea from the start. The 23-year-old founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, has apologized to members for the Beacon advertising program. Now, companies make mistakes every day. What Zuckerberg did next, though, was surprisingly refreshing. He went to the company's blog and he started writing. He wrote these words. We've made a lot of mistakes building this feature, but we've made even more with how we've handled them. Now, whether he had the advice of a public relations professional or just used his own good common sense isn't clear, but the actions were correct if the goal was to placate clients. Here's how he finished that section. Instead of acting quickly, we took too long to decide on the right solution. So Facebook now allows users to turn off that beacon program that allows users to share information about purchases they make. There's nothing wrong with sharing the information if you want to. That's one of the reasons the Internet is so popular. But the user does need to have the opportunity to determine what information to share. Facebook actually went a step further. Beacon will be disabled by default. If users want it, they must explicitly turn it on. The actions came following pressure from MoveOn.org, which had signed up 50,000 people to protest against Beacon. Facebook isn't exactly out of the woods yet. MoveOn says the change made was good, but the larger question is the basic right of Internet users to control their own information. And the Center for Digital Democracy says that Facebook is still invading users' privacy by collecting information about what users do online. So... Stay tuned. Now, let's say you're a spammer. Let's say you're making a lot of money with spam. And let's say you get caught, tried, convicted, and sentenced. What should the sentence be? A court in Colorado seems to think that maximum sentences are a good idea. Starting on January 7th, Min Kim will begin serving 30 months in prison for spamming. U.S. District Judge Lewis Babcock decided that King's spamming activities, for which he had kept excellent records, put him in a more punitive sentencing range. A 24-year-old could be 27 or 28 by the time he gets out of prison. Under the federal Can-Spam Act, Kim could have faced an extra year in prison had this been his second offense. This was his first offense. Investigators found seven and a half million email addresses on Kim's computer, and he acknowledged having bought another 200 million back in 2004. Your address was probably in there. Mine, too. Kim earned about $250,000 from spam-related activities, and there was no mention in the court record of paying a fine or having to pay anything back. So, for 30 months in prison, he clears a quarter of a million dollars. That works out to about $8,300 a month some punishment. A lot of EVE Online players who use Windows XP and updated the game this week are more than a little miffed. That's because the update converted their computers into high-priced doorstops. There was a programming error by EVE Online, and that, coupled with lax security settings under Windows XP, allowed the patch to overwrite a file called boot any 
on the Windows boot drive. Without boot any, Windows will not boot. The computer will not start. EVE Online quickly put a message up on their website telling people not to reboot their computer if they had installed the update, but hundreds or possibly thousands of players didn't see the message in time. So they shut down or rebooted the computers and found that they no longer had a working computer when they tried to reboot it. This has not been particularly well received by the company's customers. I think I see a class action lawsuit in the future. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 9th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.